Folks, welcome back to Michael and Us. I'm Luke Savage. As always, with me is my esteemed colleague. Uh, that is Will Sloan. We're back. We're loose. Uh, I subjected Will this week to uh, no less than three episodes of Aaron Sorkin's The West Wing from a, an era of the show actually uh, written by Aaron Sorkin, The Golden Age. Rob Lowe's still on the show. We're going to get to that in a bit. Um, awful, awful experience. <laughs> Will Will has seen less than what is it? You, I, I, I put the number at ten episodes. I've probably seen ten episodes in my life. And the thing is, if you haven't seen them like kind of consecutively, it's like you haven't really seen them. Like so, you you are kind of a West Wing noob. Whereas I am. It's like I, that, I've seen ten episodes, and yet I'm looking at this sh- this show, and I don't even know who these characters are. Right. I, I know who you know, Stockard like Channing. Rob Lowe's on the show. Bradley Whitford's on the show. Yeah. Allison and Jane. I know the general ethos of it. Uh huh. This is why Michael and us is such a great kind of social experiment, because when Will watches something like this, it's just like, what the fuck is this? Like, it's kind of, you know that it exists. It's a kind of a piece of like liberal paraphernalia that you have to acknowledge because that's what our show is. But for me, every time I watch a West Wing episode, there are so many layers of myself that are kind of caught up in it, right? It's like, I remember every beat, every moment, but more than that, okay, you know what it's like? Do you remember the scene in High Fidelity where Jack Black visits John... Uh, not Jack Black. The other guy at the record store. I don't and, remember another guy at the record store. I thought it was just Jack Black. Well, Jack Black works at the record store and then there's a guy called like... Is it Dale? Whatever his okay. name is. Yeah. The bald guy. Yeah. At the record store in Chicago, he visits John Cusack at home and he's like, do you want to come out and see the show that Marie DeSalle is doing? And John Cusack's uh, busy re- reordering his record collection. And uh, the guy's trying to figure out, like, how are you reordering it? And he's like, well, uh, is it alphabetical? He's like, no. Uh, chronological? Uh, no. He's like, John Cusack, it's autobiographical. And he's like, it's like you want to tell, I'm going to tell you how I got from uh, Deep Purple to Howlin' Wolf in just five moves. It's like, if I want to find the song Landslide by Fleetwood Mac... I have to remember that I bought it in the summer of 1989 uh, as a gift for someone, but didn't give it to them for personal reasons, <laughs> right? So his whole record collection is like on the base. He's yeah. like all himself is like invested in these things tied up in it. And that's what it's like for me. When <laughs> I was growing up, like the West Wing was symbolic of a certain kind of quality television. Uh-huh. Right? People would talk about it as, oh, this is such a smart show. Oh, it's man. so well written. It's it got this auteur, yeah. this auteur screenwriter, Aaron Sorkin. And it was all about really complicated <laughs> politics stuff. A lot of stuff that I frankly had trouble following. So well, but you're because you're like you're a simpleton, unlike me, who yeah. gets like you yeah. know highbrow political shit. Yeah, exactly. So I felt very excluded from the show and quite insecure about that. So then along came Studio Sixty on the Sunset Strip, which was about something that I knew and cared about, which was Saturday Night Live. I've not seen it. We'll have to get into it at some point. Oh man, we'll have to do. So it. Yeah. I watched probably the first six or seven episodes of that really because i was like okay this is going to be my aaron sorkin show <laughs> they're walking and talking through the halls they're really serious but it's about a thing i know which is comedy <laughs> there's an awesome bit in that show where there's a cast member he's on the snl show right and his brother is off in iraq and his dad is a really serious military veteran. And so he, his dad is really disapproving. It's like, yeah, okay, you're on this silly comedy show. You're doing goofy, goofy jokes, but your brother is doing really serious stuff. <laughs> You'll never live up to your... You should be in Iraq, frankly. So that's one of the dramas on the show. And the resolution is the son gives his father an LP that has Abbott and Costello, <laughs> who's, who's on first on it. 
and <laughs> and they bond over who's on first. The like actually like the creakiest piece of comedy. All right, all right. Let let's okay. so so I don't wanna I don't want to exhaust our whole episode, all the all the material for episode before we get into it. But that right there is like that's Aaron Sorkin's entire like that's his main writing chop. That's the central conceit of everything he's done, right? If people saw a few weeks ago, I can't remember quite when it was, but when the newsroom 9-11 episode, Ugh. that moment was circulating, right? What's the conceit there? It, it's the Osama bin Laden. Right. Or excuse me, yeah, excuse yeah. me. Yeah. So if people don't know what I'm talking about, this is a scene in the newsroom where all the reporters are on a plane. It's the night of the bin Laden raid. And they're all having a goofy time and the male characters, you know, they're talking down to the bimbo in the scene because she's got no idea what's going on. They're on an airplane. There's this dumb woman flight attendant. That's right. And then all of a sudden, the vibe changes very quickly because one of them gets on his like Blackberry satellite phone, whatever, the news that Osama bin Laden's dead. And uh, he sees the lapel pin on the pilot's, you know, well, the pilot's lapel and I guess the Im- implication is that airline staff at a private airline, they're the troops now. <laughs> like, I guess in the same way that there's been this attempt to kind of make firefighters the troops. Yeah. It's like the same thing. And he goes, sir, I have some very important news to tell you. <laughs> like, Osama bin Laden has just been killed or whatever. So in that scene, the whole kind of conceit, if you watch it, is actually hard to believe this not parody at this point. Mm-hmm. I guess like that's one of those kind of oddities mm-hmm. that maybe made a bit more sense at the time. The whole conceit of the scene and the way that it's written is that there's this kind of goofy comic shit or whatever and then it turns deathly serious to remind you that, hey, these are real people, but like there's various serious stuff involved. We got big institutions at play here. We got we got the institutions of state, the military, private airlines, uh, the press, late night TV, all the different estates that you, make you remember modern America. How that, how that scene ends. It ends with <laughs> the reporters high-fiving each other because you know what they did? They did their solemn duty of reporting the news. You remember? Because <laughs> <You laughs> they informed the people on the airplane of what the news right. is. Right. We'll, we'll have to do. We'll have to do. It's like the... through sleet or hail or gloom <laughs> right. of night, right, we will right. not stop these couriers from their appointed round of That's... reporting the news. <laughs> That's right. We'll have to do a progress on the newsroom at some point. But it's like the implication is like, look, if people that were paid seven figures to report for like NBC or whatever. Uh, didn't tell you bin laden was dead you know you might have to wait three minutes for the white house press conference for them to then tell you via the white house press conference you might never know yeah yeah (laughs) captain my name is don Kiefer. that's elliot hirsch and that's sloan sabbath we work for atlantis cable news and we wanted you and your first officer and flight attendant crazy lady to be the first ones on this plane to know that our armed forces killed Osama bin Laden for you tonight. Anyway, there's some more examples of that particular Aaron Sorkin flourish chop that we'll get into with the three episodes of The West Wing I subjected Will to this week. But I think there was something else that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, let's have a little segment called Michael and Us uh, News News Chunks. <laughs> we'll have to work on that. We'll have to workshop title. that one, but... <laughs> So 
something that I forgot to bring up last week that I'm really eager to talk about is the death of the film and theater critic John Simon at age 94. You're gonna have to you're gonna have to fill in I think me and some of the listeners on this. So who is John Simon? John Simon, as I said, he was 94, so he was the last of a certain generation of New York-based film critics. Giants walked the earth in the 1960s and 1970s. Big battles were fought at the annual New York Film Critics Circle Association Awards voting <laughs> dinner. This is the time... That actually sounds like something Aaron Sorkin would make. <laughs> yeah. Because in those days, people, people were fighting for film. They were fighting for film as an art form. And what is film as an art form? <laughs> Can movies themselves be art or is it just a disreputable <laughs> medium? There were a number of different uh, strong personalities in New York at the time. Andrew Saris was the critic who brought the auteur theory to America from France. Pauline Kael, you know, the Elvis of film criticism. There was Bosley Crowther, the old, worn-out, Philistine sort of middle-brow critic for the New York Times. Uh, And then there was uh, John Simon, who wrote for a variety of publications, uh, including the Hudson Review, the New York Times, Esquire, the National Review. And he was a snob. That was his whole deal. He was the defender of film against the barbarians at the gate. Uh, he wrote a book about Ingmar Bergman, which I believe has a semi-good reputation. Well, I've not heard of that. His whole deal was he was very erudite. So he knew a lot about the history of classical music and art, but he was quite a conservative man, uh, both in his politics and in his taste. And he was the kind of guy who, like to him, Jean-Luc Godard was irresponsibly decadent. Wow, that, that was what a snob he was. You know, anything Yikes. anything that smacked of any sort of postmodernism, <laughs> uh, he, he was not into it. And, you know, in particular, he had a reputation for being incredibly mean in his reviews. Oh man, a man after my own heart, perhaps. <laughs> well, it, it's not a it's not a good kind of mean. He oh, would dear. he would say awful things about actors and particularly actresses and the way they looked. Okay, so not a man after my own heart. I would like to distance myself from my remark that I made a moment ago. I don't know anything about this guy. Tell us how mean he was. <laughs> of Barbara Streisand, he said uh, her nose cleaves <gasps> the giant screen from east to west bisects it from north to south it zigzags across our horizon like a bolt of fleshy lightning good lord uh, he also called wallace sean unsightly uh which is i mean i'm not i'm not saying this stuff isn't funny but i am saying that it's a little bit irresponsible for a critic to write stuff like that incidentally uh, a friend of mine and i we we watched uh, toy story 3 this weekend and i forgot wow. that wallace sean plays the uh, the dinosaur w- wallace sean <laughs> is great I uh, love Wallace Shawn. We terrific. should do uh, My Dinner with Andre. It's great, great film. Think? Roger Ebert wrote of John Simon, I feel repugnance for the critic John Simon who made it a specialty to attack the way actors look. They can't help how they look any more than John Simon can help looking like a rat. The reason I wanted to bring up John Simon is not only is he the last of that generation, but I feel like of all the powerful critics of that generation, he was the only one who didn't inspire any acolytes. Nobody followed in his tradition. He was sort of a dead end. One of the reasons for that was because he was just such an ungenerous writer. But more than that, I don't think he had a particularly interesting worldview. And, you know, it's interesting. I've read a number of the obituaries about him. 
And the obituaries try to make a very desperate case for him where they say, well, you know, he was incredibly cruel and everybody, uh, particularly in the Broadway scene, because he was a theater critic, hated him and had nothing nice to say for him. All these actors had their feelings hurt by him so much. But, you know, uh, he, he, he was a, he was a real character. Right. That's what they all come down to. What a, you know, you know, you, you got to hand it to him. He was really, uh, he was really uh, uh, some kind of a guy, you know. And I don't think there was anything there. Yes, he was a good prose stylist, but for what? Yes, he was erudite, but for what? And his whole worldview was just just a closed box, you know? I mean, I was initially pretty curious about him based on your description, because I think it's interesting that somebody could have sort of these cutting, distinctive prose, but not inspire acolytes, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, other figures from around the same time in film and in other things, like Hunter S. Thompson, right, would very obvious Sir, example yeah, to reach yeah. to you know, has like so many imitators and, uh, you know, this guy doesn't, I think that's interesting. But nowhere in your description did you kind of cite anything about where he comes down critically. I mean, the closest you got to it is that he's a snob and kind of proud of it. I mean, snobbishness is not an ideology. It's a posture you assume in relation to other things. And on its own, it's not really enough to substantiate a kind of critical identity. So in the 1960s, he was standing tall and defending Bergman against these Philistines who would want to call something like, I don't know, A Hard Day's Night a masterpiece. Man, A Hard Day's Night is a masterpiece. Fuck, fuck this guy. I agree. But but so... Richard Lester's a genius. But, this guy can go to hell. But at least... At we gotta t- do a hard, day, hard Day's Night I lo- Yeah, point. I love A Hard Day's Night. But <laughs> in the 60s, at least he's defending Bergman. Uh-huh. Later in his career, you know, you get to the 90s and he's, and he's defending Driving Miss Daisy and Life is Beautiful. <laughs> so I, it's, it's like, like that's, that's his snobby it's, idea it, this is like the film critic equivalent of sort of sort of like 9-11 Republican. He was like a staunch defender of the New Deal. He was like the New Deal and the Great Society is the apex of politics. So already sort of like inadequate, you know, whatever. But then after 9-11, he's like, you know, we got to rally behind the president. Actually, uh, this is, you know, the most <laughs> actually, you know, the invasion of Iraq is basically like Gettysburg and we have to get uh, we have to get behind it. That's what it yeah. sounds like to me. But, you know, in the spirit of John Simon's kind and generous criticism, <laughs> farewell, John. I- I'm sorry you had a wasted life. <laughs> On another note, you recently went to what can what can I call it? A Toronto institution. <laughs> uh, a Canadian institution. It's called the Monk Debate, folks. <laughs> It's where people of opposing ideologies get on stage at Roy Thompson Hall in Toronto and they hash over the issues of the day and an audience of of curious, intellectually curious spectators come to a conclusion of which is right. I mean, probably the quintessential monk debate is Christopher Hitchens versus Tony Blair on is Christianity good for the world? (laughs) There are a number of monk debates every year. Uh, there was, I mean, there was one not long ago where it was Jordan Peterson and Stephen Fry on the same team talking <laughs> about political correctness. They get big guests. Yeah. And why were you at the monk debate? Why were you at this appalling institution? <laughs> so I've been to several of these. I want to uh, state for the record, I have never once paid for, for, for tickets. 
And, uh, you know, in my younger and more vulnerable years, to paraphrase F. Scott Fitzgerald, I mean, I did at one point, I guess, kind of like enjoy these things like eight or nine years ago. It's cool to see a famous person. Well, like I remember going to see like Paul Krugman debate Larry Summers and being like, yeah, okay, we're going to get like a highbrow debate between two of the alphas of Keynesian economics or whatever, right? But just a, a friend of mine was like, hey, I got tickets for this thing that I got for free. Do you want to come along? So last night's debate was Yana. Varoufakis, the former finance minister of Greece, author of Adults in the Room, The Global Minotaur, great books that I hope listeners to our show will read, I think we'll find very interesting, a member of the Greek parliament currently, founder of an interesting left-wing faction within the EU, which we could do a whole episode on, I have lots of opinions about that, a very compelling writer and speaker with a really interesting personal history. An academic who kind of decided just a few years ago that he was going to get into politics and briefly was one of the kind of most important finance ministers in the world. He was joined by Katrina Vanden Heuvel, former longtime editor of The Nation, and they were debating two Brookses, Alpha Dog, David Brooks, <laughs> and I confess, I think it's an A, an A Brooks was his ally. I'm pretty sure it was Alfred Brooks. Okay. Not Albert Not Albert. Uh, Yes. A fellow I had not heard of. And they were debating the question of like, yeah, people can look it up. It was something like, be it resolved that capitalism has failed or something like that. I noticed you didn't give David Brooks the same kind of beautiful introduction you gave. I think people know who David Brooks is. So I, (laughs) we'll, we'll, we'll get to David in a, in a moment. Um, But so, you know, so people who aren't familiar that maybe don't live in Toronto, the Monk Debates is a big institution in Canada, in Toronto. So little did I know many years ago that when I was like enjoying, you know, Monk Debates, that I would later write an investigation at my old job, Press Progress, into the ARIA Foundation. Peter Monk, the late founder of the eponymously named Monk Debates, he was Canada's top hospital donor. He made a number of very big donations to hospitals in Toronto. And as my investigation found, he also gave a tremendous amount of money to right-wing charities and think tanks uh, who are committed to the overturn of Canada's universal public health care system. He's somebody that was uh, incredibly right-wing and was lionized in the Canadian press after he died uh, with absolutely no critical pushback for his involvement in right-wing politics. It was great when my friend and I were sitting down to watch this debate last night. We got a sort of trailer of all the past debates, right? And you got just so many absolute ghouls, just a cavalcade of genocide apologists and fascists. Was Henry Kissinger in there? Yes, in fact, he was. He was on the stage with Fareed Zakaria debating China. Uh, of course, longtime listeners of the show will remember the sketch that Will and I wrote where populism and democracy were put up against <laughs> one another. Steve Bannon and David Frum had a debate about populism. There was a debate about political correctness in which Michelle Goldberg faced off against Stephen Fry and Jordan Peterson. There was a debate about American democracy in which on the pro side, you had Andrew Sullivan on the con side, you had Newt Gingrich because those are the only, uh, that's the- that's Wait, the, Andrew Sullivan was pro-democracy. I, I mean, Newt I, Gingrich I, was anti. Andrew Sullivan was pro. This is October. What else, what else do they disagree on? Uh, Andrew Sullivan. This is October 2017. He was pro the resolution. Be it resolved, American doc- democracy is in its worst crisis in generation, and Donald oh. J- Day Trump is to blame. Newt Gingrich was speaking against the motion. In April, uh, subject the future of geopolitics. 
Be it resolved the liberal international order is over. Fareed Zakaria spoke against. Niall Ferguson spoke in favor. People will get a sense from these. If you really want to kind of dive into the monk debates, search it on YouTube. You can watch many of the past debates. This is for a certain kind of upper crust Torontonian. Uh, you know, it's Oxford style debating if people have watched IQ2 or they've seen debates at the Oxford units. It's that kind of general style. Uh, it's broadcast over Facebook, Facebook partners in it, in fact. You know, the goal is for a sort of viral type of debate. You get famous people on the stage, they debate these kind of things. My honest view of it is I really think it's a parody of intellectual inquiry. I, I think it's appalling. The types of voices they tend to have on the debate, the framing of the questions I think is appalling. Having Steve Bannon debate David Frum is, you know, like let's have a debate between the right and the far right and have that be the acceptable spectrum of opinion. But for a particular type of sort of upper crust Torontonian, this is like what their idea is of like very highbrow intellectual inquiry. Really what it's about, and you can see this if you've, if you've been to any of these things, it's like let's be in the room with famous, important people. Let's relish in how famous these people are. But more importantly, let's relish in kind of how consequential the debate is and hey, what a concept, these people that disagree, they're getting together, they're having this very highbrow debate where they shake hands after. So last night you had Yanis Varoufakis, you had Katrina Vanden Heuvel, formerly of the nation, speaking uh, nominally against capitalism. You have Arthur Brooks and David Brooks speaking on the con side to the resolution the capitalist system is broken, it's time to try something different. This was a very frustrating debate. I very much enjoyed hearing from Yanis Varoufakis. He's a very eloquent speaker. He's a writer I like tremendously. The pro-capital side, you know, kind of narrowly won by a few points. That's because the audience gets to vote. The audience gets to vote. I mean, it's it's meaningless whether the kind of like nominally more liberal side or whatever wins or left-wing side doesn't really matter. It's pretty much nonsense. So in last night's debate, you had the two Brookses delivering different narratives that I'm intimately familiar with. You know, David Brooks is kind of just an amalgam of every like everything he writes is like an amalgam of various arguments pioneered by the conservative movement his kind of thing was like hey well uh, the alternative to capitalism is you have a bigger state and what does a bigger state mean it means donald trump gets to spend more of the money would you would you trust that so that's like a talking point like thatcherites pioneered in the 80s absolute nonsense you also had david brooks doing another thing that i really like which i actually think we've we've kind of uh, touched on in the show before you know where he's like Look, you know, I'm a conservative. I don't really like capitalism uh, all that much in that I think that it has problems. You know, it leads to atomization. People don't value communities. So I think people need to have higher values, you know, that are outside of capitalism or whatever. Like religion? Well, yeah, that would be that would be one of them. So this is like a very kind of classic conservative move, like we're going to privatize uh, morality or whatever. It's, I, I, I mean, basically think it's bullshit because it assumes that you can kind of separate the sphere of the political from people's individual values and of course those are like those two things are intimately connected right how you think about politics is ultimately a question of you know how you think about we should all live together that's not something that you can privatize but the thing that i like the most that david brooks says which by the way i'd never seen david brooks in the flesh before very tiny man hmm. um like much shorter than i expected well, he's a giant to me. <laughs> now, now, so another thing he said was he was talking about sort of, you know, alternative, you know, alternatives or whatever. And he was saying, look, hey, the Scandinavian societies, you know, they're actually capitalists. You know, they have a lot of great features. Those are great societies. And what I loved about that move is I love the idea of David Brooks 
defending any core feature of like Danish or Norwegian or, you know, Finnish or Swedish social democracy in practice in the United States, right? This guy is pandering to a Canadian audience, right? Which is another thing among debates, right? The vast majority of the people that debate in them are American. And every single person, whichever side they represent, will be like, hey, well, of course, we don't have to tell you this. You live in Canada. You're smart. You do things better than us. Uh. We're dumb. We're dumb American roots. Every single person does that. Every single person. Insufferable. But so Brooks is doing kind of a version of this where he's pandering to to everyone he and actually he pandered to Canada but like only one of us on stage was born in Canada which I think David Brooks actually was so you know Canada hereby apologizes for both David Brooks and David from also as alumni of the varsity Will and I hereby apologize for David well, we from. make we make up for it <laughs> that's right but so Brooks is you know he's saying oh you know actually Scandinavian social democracy there's a lot to commend it and I just love the idea of imagine Brooks I was hoping there's gonna be a Q&A because I really wanted to ask Brooks, you know, as a writer for a socialist magazine, I've tremendously appreciated your remarks this evening in favor of, of, you know, core features of the (laughs) Scandinavian welfare state, high levels of public ownership, wealth taxes, a strong social safety net. So will you use your next column to endorse the only Democratic presidential (laughs) candidate who is in favor of anything, you know, even coming close to this? You're a, hey, you're a staunch communitarian, I hear. Maybe you'll you'll get on board with some of the stuff. People will be more equal. They will, you know, um, we can can actually decommodify aspects of life, get outside the capitalist system. You've just espoused uh, support for that. Didn't have the opportunity. But just imagine for one second, David Brooks, defending any of these things in practice in his closing uh in his closing remarks he got up he took aim at verifacus like he's like we've heard a lot of uh you know because verifacus he was just like you know capitalism's already dead right like all the sort of free market principles people who defend capitalism cleave to we're living in a world of monopolies it's nonsense so the question is just what comes next there's no question of whether you know Capitalism doesn't work. It's dead. So David Brooks taking aim at Verifacus, and he's like, look, we've heard a lot of utopian theories tonight about how blockchain is going to make central banking is going to be public. We're going to have blockchain financial transactions, blah, blah, blah. He's like, that's very utopian. You know, we don't want to take a risk on this stuff. I'm a moderate. I think change needs to happen incrementally. It's like, buddy, you don't need to support reversing the Bush tax cuts. (laughs) It's like, this is another classic conservative move, right? You, they position themselves as these anti-utopians, but it's like the utopianism they oppose is like free tuition at public colleges. <laughs> it's like a healthcare system that doesn't kill 25,000 people a year. <laughs> That's the utopianism that they oppose. If Brooks's interlocutor had been Paul Mason or something, there might have been, like, if, if it had been an actual person on the left that supports, you know, some kind of utopianism, he might have had something going for my, he still would have been wrong. Absolute nonsense. But it's so funny to hear a guy like Brooks pander to, like, an upper cross Canadian being like, oh, no, social democracy is great. I love it. Scandinavia is great. Whatever. Imagine him supporting any of that stuff practically. Wouldn't wouldn't happen. And Alfred Brooks, the less said about him, the better. He was a kind of Penglossian liberal who's like, hey, I used to be a socialist. And then I realized... Why did immigrants come to this beautiful continent? Because they were glorious riffraff who wanted to work hard and, and play by the rules and make something out of themselves. And I'm, I'm proud of that, and you should be too. Uh, just just nonsense. Sort of naked attempt to co-opt the language of solidarity for capitalism. And at one point, he suggested that capitalism invented the welfare state, which uh, I think cumulatively is couple million generations of trade unionists would probably disagree with that there but, is money uh, involved again, yeah sure okay good good point uh well you know i'm <laughs> this glad- is like this is like that thing of like hey you say you're a socialist but use the <laughs> iphone you know 
I'm glad you went to this though, because I mean, I, even as unpleasant as it well, sounded, well, well, I should say, invited me to something else uh, last night that I'm sure would have been much got, more yeah, pleasant. I, I, I got snow. I, I blew so them you off. could hang out with. Yeah. You know, you're traveling in higher circles now. You have to hang out with kind of higher class political commentators <laughs> the, the like thi- David Brooks. The thing, the thing is, this was this was all to generate content for our podcast. So, I, Will, yeah. I was thinking about you the whole time. Well, thank you, and actually, I'm glad you went because. Our podcast is popular enough now that we really ought to be making an appearance at things like this, places where the Toronto Society turns out, me, where the me, real movers and shakers are, the can, boards of directors of various Bay Street gangs. Can I tell one more monk debate story? Go right ahead. So there's a previous monk debate where for reasons I won't go into here, I somehow got my ticket, um, which I did not pay for, I will just reiterate, got me to the VIP section after. Ooh. So or I was in a room with Paul Krugman. Larry Summers, uh, you know, the kind of upper crust. This was sort of the, the where like date night, if you're like an exorbitantly rich Torontonian, was you're one of the hundred people in this uh, this martini soaked room wow. after. So I had no one to talk to. There was an old professor of mine in there who I went up to and I said, oh, hi, professor. Uh, I was in your class, whatever. And she's like, oh, yes, I remember you. She 100% did not remember me. <laughs> or Michael Ignatieff, who w- would soon to be my professor, didn't know me at that point. He was in the room. Recently disgraced, failed leader of the opposition. He got to ask a planted question in the Q&A, which I appreciated. I kind of skulked around for a bit, realized that I didn't belong there uh, and left. Although I did think... You belong I, there now, pal. <laughs> I did think I... I think I did get a free drink. And then there was a moment where Peter Monk came into the room and we're all supposed to shake his hand. And I was like physically maneuvering to make sure I would not have to be in any situation where I was confronted with the, even the possibility of shaking Peter Monk's hand. Well, Luke, you're a rebel, but remember, the rebels eventually become the establishment. One day it'll be you on stage at the Monk Debates. And as uh, jaundiced an eye as you have towards that room with the movers and shakers, what you've got to remember is spaces like that, that's where the real change makers go. That's where, that's where the smartest men in the room are. And there aren't that many places like that, but one of them is the Oval Office. <laughs> And that's where we traveled tonight. That's the 10 word answer my staff's been looking for for two weeks. There it is. 10 word answers can kill you in political campaigns. They're the tip of the sword. Here's my question. What are the next 10 words of your answer? Your taxes are too high, so are mine. Give me the next 10 words. How are we going to do it? Give me 10 after that. I'll drop out of the race right now. Every once in a while, every once in a while, there's a day with an absolute right and an absolute wrong. But those days almost always include body counts. Other than that, there aren't very many unnuanced moments in leading a country that's way too big for 10 words. I'm the president of the United States, not the president of the people who agree with me. By the way, if the left has a problem with that, they should vote for somebody else. So as I said before, I made Will watch no less than three episodes of The West Wing. Before we get into the content of these three episodes, which were very strategically chosen, these were three consecutive episodes in the fourth season, which detail first the debate camp, that's the first episode, the debate training that Josiah Bartlett, played by Martin Sheen, does ahead of his debate with Governor Ritchie of Florida, who's his Republican opponent. Played by James Brolin. Played by James Brolin. That's the second episode we watched. The third episode was the Election Day episode, which is very much in keeping with our kind of uh, what we've called the politics, what a concept ethos. But since politics is an incredible concept, before we get into the West Wing, I did want to just read from uh, probably one of the most incredible things I read this week. People will know there's a very exciting, young, youthful, fresh-faced, idealistic Democratic candidate who's been surging in recent polls. 
name of Pete Buttigieg. He's a Democrat. He's the mayor of a uh, small town in Indiana, which is a you know increasingly a red state. So he brings outsider knowledge. This is a Democrat who can win in the Midwest. Probably one of the most exciting Democrats in a generation. For those of you that thought Beto O'Rourke was super cool, I'm telling you, this guy's got everything. And I just wanted to read from uh, something that this is something one of his extremely online supporters, also I believe closest advisors, was on record saying this week, I'm just going to read from you uh, now because, you know, if you're not stoked enough about the Pete Buttigieg campaign, I think this will get you in the mood. Liz has absolutely no fear, said Jeff Smith, a former Missouri lawmaker who dated Smith for four years and considers her one of his closest advisors. There is nothing too big for her. She doesn't give a fuck. She is the most competitive person I have ever known. This includes with her own boss. She is 36, a year younger than Buttigieg, which, thank God, otherwise I would kill myself, which is to say that Buttigieg may know seven languages and carry you around Ulysses and sit in with the South Bend Orchestra on piano, but as far as his top eight is concerned, it is only because he has an extra year on her. I think I am impressive because I am a violinist and I went to Dartmouth and I speak French and have traveled all around the world and I don't know, I know a lot about great apes, she says. But there have been a few times when I have been around him when I knew something, a factoid or something he didn't know, and let me tell you, I fucking lured it all over him. Oh really? You didn't know that? I can't believe you didn't know that. I thought everybody knew that. So, you know, Will and I are blue-collar guys, and obviously, like, we can't relate to this on a personal level because we relate to politics very simply, but, like, I look up to anyone that can say they were, like, a violinist at Dartmouth or whatever. They got a command of facts. I mean, you know, I don't know a lot about great apes, but I, too, would like to command an encyclopedic knowledge of the majestic beast known as the great ape. And so, obviously, when I read this, I was head over heels in favor of Mayor Pete's campaign. And I just think that, above all, it's time that, for once, there was a smart person in the White House. You know, a person that wasn't a disgrace to the office, that was able to converse in multiple languages. Somebody with more than a half dozen neurons firing in his brain. Somebody that can say, hey, I carry a James Joyce novel around in my pocket. And once quoted 15 words of Finnegan's Wake from memory. And I think it was this more than anything that made me want to uh, introduce Will to these three episodes of Aaron Sorkin's The West Wing. A dramatic trifecta which demonstrate clearly that smart people always win out in politics, that the rubes lose, that you can win every single debate and triumph over your, your enemies and the forces of evil by having the best lines in a debate. So that's why we watched In Succession, Debate Camp, Game on and election night. Will, your instant reaction to these three incredible episodes of the best drama about politics ever created. Well, like you say, we're blue collar guys. <laughs> so I'm, this stuff may be going above my head. <laughs> I had trouble keeping up with it all. Uh, I thought it was just, I, I hate this show. I, <laughs> like, I know that you've made a brand of hating this show, but like you've seen the show from beginning to end. You've... <laughs> As we were watching it, you were just firing facts about, about oh, yeah, this character's going to do this later. And, you know, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, this. Oh, oh, yeah, Rob Lowe left the show because of this. And, you know, now, me, I just have bone-deep contempt for Kay. it and have, Kay. don't like anything. I want to speak in my defense here for a second because you think you hate the show, but you have no conception of, like... Of what it means Of what it hate. means to hate the show. <laughs> No, I, I know you spent more time and energy <laughs> hating the show than I have. You say I built a brand off it, but buddy, let me tell you, before I wrote an article about, like, before I wrote an essay about why the show was bad, 
the searing hatred that was pent up inside me for it animated my politics for years before like anyone followed Luke Savage on Twitter.com. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing that the things that you hate, the things that are so offensive to you can be as influential to the way you are as the things that you love. Well, so watching the West Wing, you know, there's a lot tied up in it for me, as I was saying before. I mean, I did at one point watch the show for entertainment. I can't unfortunately go as far as say, or maybe fortunately, I can't go as far as saying that I was ever like a strict convert to the show, right? I was, I've was i never been a sort of thoroughgoing like normie lib who watched The West Wing and was like, this is what politics should be or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I did enjoy the show. And, you know, I did think that in my conception of the political spectrum at one point, I did think this falls on the kind of the progressive side of things or whatever. I did think that it was kind of a, a, a somewhat smart uh, show at one point. And because I've watched it so many times, there are multiple parts of my politi- my own political identity that are kind of tied up in various moments of it. Because I, I can watch the same scene from it and think, you know, remember a, a one time thinking, this is brilliant. And then another time thinking, this makes me want to vomit. I think this is nauseating <laughs> and I hate it with every fiber of my being. And our And our viewing of these three episodes was no different. I definitely reject... Just the core premise of the show, which is that it's interesting to watch these awful, boring people having their boring conversations, walking, talking in the hall in classic Aaron Sorkin fashion. They're always saying just such stupid and banal things about, oh, uh, uh, President Bartlett, you were polling at 52% three months ago, and now you're polling at 48%. If the election were held today, you would be the economics president at Dartmouth. You know, I mean, none of that is interesting to me. There are many instances in in this show where somebody will come in the room and say, um, uh, Mr. President, Israel has fired on a terrorist embankment in, um, and then they'll say a fictional Middle Eastern country. And Bartlett will be like, oh, well, I will, we'll have to spring to action. And the strike is potentially interesting. But what's not interesting to me is Bartlett springing to action in this abstract conflict that's happening halfway across the globe while Bradley Whitford is having some sort of personal drama and uh, there's another staffer whose wife is pregnant and there's like a, a, a dumb female secretary because of course the show is very sexist because it's written by Aaron Sorkin. I don't know. It's it's like a perfect compendium of things that I don't think are good or interesting. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely agree with all of that. And one of the things that really came through watching these three episodes was the extent to which the West Wing universe is all about kind of leaning into how the characters are just sort of like ordinary people who are so bemused to kind of be there. And this goes back to the scene from the newsroom, which is emblematic of you know, Aaron Sorkin's particular style, where it has this stupid faux mannequin quality of like, hey, we're going to put on a suit and tie and talk about politics, but also like, you know, we're going to have a, we're going to have fun. We're going to, we're going to do it like a, we're going to, we're going to joke around, whatever. And hey, I'm a bit of a fuck up in my personal life. (laughs) Exactly. There are no less than three, possibly more actually, little scenes in just these three episodes we watched where there's like a practical joke carried out under the auspices of like the extreme seriousness of these like institutions of state. This is just in three episodes that are consecutive. So there's a thing where 
Donna Moss, the secretary to Josh Lyman, the assistant Josh Lyman, played by Bradley Whitford, she is trolled in a flashback by her kind of Republican counterpart who's leaving the White House into thinking there's a nuclear weapon under the Eisenhower lawn. She tells this to a magazine. Josh Lyman gets mad at her. She says, how could I possibly have been so dumb? But then he, she trolls him by having one of, you know, some other junior White House staffer go in and pretend to be an NSA agent being like, Ms. Moss has revealed important secrets or whatever. Um, there's that. There's a scene right before the debate where Toby Ziegler, the White House, I think, deputy communications director or communications director, I can't remember. They troll him by saying like, oh yeah, he's having a crisis of confidence, uh, the president, he's not ready for the debate. Uh, he goes in, he yells at the president who's flubbing his answers in this drill. He goes in, has a confrontation with the president who's flubbing his answers in this drill. Uh, but then of course the president's just joking. He's as eloquent as, yeah. as ever. They like, pass $10 around, you know, in their bets or whatever. Uh, right at the start of the third, every single episode we watch has yeah. one of these. At the start of the third episode, Josh Lyman is in the voting booth, and then all these ordinary rubes are coming up to him, and they're saying, like, so uh, if I vote on the ballot, you know, if you vote for the Democrat once, you vote for all the Democrats on the ballot, right? And he's like, yes, yes, yes. Oh, wait, no, no, no. And then another person will come up and say, uh, so uh, I voted for uh, I voted for the Republican. I put him as my number two, but that means that the, the president's my number one, right? And... You know, it turns out all those people are trolling Josh. They actually know exactly how the ballot works, and that's the cold open for that episode. So that's kind of like the the flourish here. Aaron Sorkin has a sense of humor. He's a funny guy. Ha ha, very funny. So I was thinking back to this wonderful piece in Descent Magazine, uh, the fall issue of Descent Magazine by Corey Robin, who's one of my favorite writers. We've talked about him on the show before. This was on the Obama Knots. And I think I've mentioned in the past how uh, multiple staffers who worked in the Obama White House have actually directly cited the West Wing. I think it was one of Obama's speechwriters, I'm forgetting which one because there have been so many, who said that, you know, I, like every Democrat under the age of 35, was in part raised by Aaron Sorkin. That's an actual quote from one of these uh, biographies. Corey Robin took the time to read uh, a great many of these. And uh, some of his observations in this piece for dissent are very germane to uh, what we see in the West Wing. Because what Aaron Sorkin does to sort of attempt to humanize these characters actually says a lot about how liberals think about their own wielding of power um, and their relationship to these institutions that they kind of simultaneously celebrate but are kind of weirdly uncomfortable and insecure about. I, I would really recommend people read the whole piece. Probably one of my favorite things I've read in the past few months. But there's a wonderful section where Robin is talking about uh, the conception of many Obama staffers um, the self-conception of, of them as outsiders. And he writes, Yet so many white men in the Obama administration started with the same how-did-little-old-me-wind-up-here shtick that the trope quickly becomes an unacknowledged confession of privilege masquerading as an inexplicable rise to power. Pfeiffer, this is Dan Pfeiffer of Pod Save America, claims he never worked in high school to get into Georgetown. All he did was bullshit his way through an interview. Unlike the grinds and nerds in college, he was too louched to lay the groundwork for a political career. He got drunk and played basketball. He never watched Obama's 2004 speech at the DNC or read Obama's books until he was being considered for a job with the campaign. Yet despite his putative lack of preparation or qualifications, Pfeiffer always gets the call from a higher-up with an offer of a job. Somehow the je ne sais quoi of his work manages to attract the attention of his inevitably white male superior. 
But Pfeiffer's self-presentation doesn't fit with his obvious careerism. He brags about not missing a day of work since his freshman year of high school. He was able to intern with Al Gore, who won the popular vote, by the way, because he earned enough credits to graduate from college early. He worked for Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle before jumping on board with Obama. But the self-styling is a tell of how a supposed unfitness for politics makes you all too fit for politics, of the conflation between insiders and outsiders that is common to the Obamanauts regardless of race, class, gender, or sexual orientation. Outsiders are supposed to be good because they bring the perspective of, well, outsiders. Because he worked in the office of the White House counsel, Sean McDougall was pressing his street cred to the fundraising arm of the Obama campaign. His pitch, quote, you need someone who understands the Mid-Atlantic, the less established donors, the real estate developer folks. That's what passes for heterodoxy in these quarters. So does promising to take out Osama bin Laden, says Rhodes, as Ben Rhodes, who recalls the purity of that event and notes wistfully how nothing would ever feel this right. Outsiders are also good because they're unstuffy. They have ordinary people problems which is why Mastro Monaco devotes 11 pages to her diarrhea. But Pfeiffer has an entire chapter on the time he was in the White House and in the seat of his pants split open, sometimes pants-splittingly funny, and Rhodes opened his memoir with a story about riding in the presidential limousine with no socks. There's a word for people like this. My 11-year-old tells me it's try-hard. <laughs> so I really think this is something that comes through very strongly in the West Wing, a show which devotes tremendous energy throughout its seven seasons into just telling us that these people are, they're very serious, but they're also very silly, yeah. right? It's like they don't belong here, but that's actually exactly why they do belong here. Mm -hmm. And this is something we, we kind of saw in these three episodes. I suppose we're about an hour into the episode. We should probably talk about what the actual plot of these episodes are for people that haven't seen the show. Well, President Bartlett is up for re-election against a... Uh, a a dimwit rube Republican. Yeah, somebody who on the debate is complaining that the good people of his state get taxed so much to fund what? Uh, Eskimo poetry? in school my view of this is simple we don't need a federal department of education telling us our children have to learn esperanto they have to learn eskimo poetry eskimo poetry let the states decide let the communities decide on health care on education on lower taxes not higher taxes now he's going to throw a big word at you unfunded mandate he's going to say if washington lets the states do it it's an unfunded mandate but what he doesn't like is the federal government losing power. But I call it the ingenuity of the American people. President Bartlett, you have 60 seconds for a question and an answer. Well, first of all, let's clear up a couple of things. Unfunded mandate is two words, not one big word. There are times when we're 50 states and there are times when we're one country and have national needs. And the way I know this is that Florida didn't fight Germany in World War II or establish civil rights. You think states should do the governing wall-to-wall. -wall. That's a perfectly valid opinion. But your state of Florida got $12.6 billion in federal money last year from Nebraskans and Virginians and New Yorkers and Alaskans with their Eskimo poetry. 12.6 out of a state budget of 50 billion. I'm supposed to be using this time for a question, so here it is. Can we have it back, please? Game on! Oh, my God. 
Longtime fans will know that we've played that clip multiple <laughs> times on the show because well, it is just symbolic of a certain kind of. Right? It's 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 very critical. So I think there's kind of two interrelated reasons. One is that uh, it speaks to a way of thinking about politics where politics is not decided by anything substantive. It's decided by these kind of viral moments where like one tribune of the people kind of gets the rhetorical upper hand on another. That's the implication. And the three episodes we watched really just chronicle. I mean, there's really no point going into the actual like specifics. I mean, basically, the first of the three episodes is the debate camp where the Bartlett team is figuring out how they're going to prepare for the debate, and they got to prepare for the fact that he might get a question about a an appointment he's done, somebody that uh, believed in racial profiling. Um, that actually doesn't come up again. We don't sense, I think, that Aaron Sorkin takes racial profiling very seriously. Well, he, ta- he takes it seriously as an issue. The implication is the Bartlett administration appointed this guy because he was a Democrat that Republicans would have a hard time criticizing. Yeah. So again, this is... And yet somehow... <laughs> well, so this is, of course, right, then this is something they have to deal with. But, uh, but the ide- in the ideal liberal conception of U.S. politics, in the fantasy world... They appoint a conservative just, you know, justice or AG who believes in racial profiling, and then they just kind of have to stick handle it later. So that's the first episode. The second episode is the one with the debate, uh, the very famous episode. And the third episode is the election night where, of course, Bartlett easily wins an, a re-election against Landslide Governor Red. by almost 10 million votes. I mean, it's like a huge margin. And uh, the B story is that uh, Sam Seaborn gets himself into a little bit of trouble in the California 47th Congressional District because Horton Wilde, who's kind of the sock puppet candidate, this is an Orange County district, uh, he's died of a heart attack. But uh, Will, who later becomes a, this is <laughs> this is the character played by Joshua Molina, not my esteemed co-host, who uh, this is the first episode he's introduced, in fact. He's, I also believe, the host of the West Wing podcast, which I'm sure every listener to our show binges weekly. He's the campaign manager. He refuses to give up. His candidate has died. And because of a bunch of kind of, uh, you know, happy circumstances, he ends up, uh, the campaign ends up winning. Sam Seaborn, when it looks like the campaign's going to lose by 20 points, says, hey, you know, if you can't find anyone to run in the, you know, in the next election, hey, what if I run for you? But then Horton Wilde actually ends up winning. And so Sam later has to run. And uh, spoiler alert, he actually loses. Uh, now, something I love about that debate clip is it starts with James Brolin sort of outlining his conservative case. And then Bartlett's response isn't a competing vision. It's fact-checking what the guy said and then sort of owning him with his own logic. Right, so that is central to understanding what the limits of the West Wing's political vision are, right? Because the question that's posed to them, I mean, honestly, it's not a bad question by the standards of US TV debates, which are terrible, which is, you know... Uh, the two of you have a dispute about the you know federal government itself and its role. And do national problems really have national solutions? And so, uh, you know, Governor Ritchie of Florida lays out, you know, the very typical dim-witted rube conservative case, which is like, you know, we don't want the federal government in our department of this and that. We don't want them forcing our kids to learn Esperanto and Eskimo poetry, he says. And Bartlett's response, yeah, so Ritchie's teed him up. He said, you know, He's going to throw a big word at you. He's going to say unfunded mandate, whatever. And so then uh, Josiah Bartlett answers, you know, well, first of all, let's clear up a couple of things. Unfunded mandate is is, is two words, not one big word. Got him. Yeah, got him. 
Done. Uh, there are times when we're 50 states. There are times when we're one country and we have, you know, national needs. And I know this because Florida didn't fight Germany in World War II and establish civil rights. It's already pretty kind of wordy and it's, loopy, isn't it? It's pretty it? annoying. Yeah. And then he's like, you think states should do the governing wall-to-wall. -wall. That's a perfectly valid opinion. But your state of Florida got $12.6 billion in federal money last year from Nebraskans and Virginians and New Yorkers and Alaskans with their Eskimo poetry. 12.6 out of a state budget of $50 billion. And I'm supposed to be using this time for a question. So here it is. Can we have it back, please? It is funny that he's asking a swing state, ironically, for its money back. Well, right. I mean, it's <laughs> ridiculous. But but it's very important what's going on here. Because, of course, the, this is the scene where the episode gets its title from. Because the Bradley Whitford character is watching in another room, you know, thrusts his fist up in the air. He says, game on. And Allison Janey, the White House press secretary, just says, oh, my God. Because they're not prepared. They've been working this, with this guy for years. But when he's bringing the big guns, they can't even handle it. Yeah. Right. And it's not an ideological refutation of what yeah. uh, of what like uh, the it, Republican says. If you were sympathetic to what James Brolin said, there's nothing in there that would make you waver in your belief that your tax money shouldn't be spent teaching Eskimo poetry. Right. All he's unquote. all he's doing is kind of rhetorically outflanking him by being like, okay, first of all, we're allowed to spend your money unfunded, because we're the federal government. That's right. Unfunded mandate. That's not one word. That's two. That's two words. Yeah. You said it's one word. It's actually two, sir. Mm -hmm. Sir. Can you count? Can you do math? It's two words. All he does is sort of like solipsistically poke holes in the already like straw man screed that James Brolin delivers. It's complete nonsense. But this is in the West Wing universe. This is what winning a debate looks like. Always being on the defense. <laughs> right again in the in the in the like idealized liberal universe uh they're always on the defense but they're just kind of winning on points right yeah. and then later in the debate bartlett's like i'm the president of the whole country not just the people who vote for me oh and by the way if the left has a problem with that they can go vote for someone else wasn't that part of uh, his answer to james brolin is talking about how it's a great time to cut your taxes we're gonna, we're gonna cut taxes and Bartlett says, okay, but, but my question to you is how? How are you going to cut taxes? Right, again, so Bartlett's big own is not about we shouldn't cut taxes. There's no ideological like response to this. It's, it's hey, just, I would love to cut taxes. He, 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 says, he, says, he says, that right there, that was the 10-word answer that my staff have been trying to drill into me for weeks. But hey, politics, it ain't about 10-word answers. I want to know what the next 10 words and the next 10 words, yeah. you know? And so basically... This is Aaron Sorkin, you know, inserting his particularly cloying, insufferable vision of politics as a sort of bit of meta text into the script, where he's basically just saying like, hey, look, you dumb rubes were amused by the bread and circuses of this kind of debate, just like you are, always are. But, you know, this is actually a terrain of really smart people. Uh -huh. and, you, and there are no 10-word answers. And this is mirrored in a kind of sea story in this episode where C.J. Craig, the White House press secretary, meets on Air Force One with a fellow who's kind of a long... He's a Republican, but he's a longtime public servant in the U.S. State Department. He's going to come up and he's going to speak in favor of Bartlett uh, at the kind of one of the press scrums after the debate. And he tells C.J., you know, look... I've been at the State Department for, for 50, 57 goddamn years or whatever. And he's like, there's no simple answers to anything. And then, you know, he gives her a simple answer. She says, that's it. Just right there. Just say that. 
But then when the actual moment comes, she actually, in a moment that is ludicrous and would probably be like, I mean, if Twitter existed, would be like a calamitous disaster for the Bartlett campaign. She actually asked him a hostile question in the scrum instead of the nice, polite one that she's had teed up, this mm-hmm. kind of contrived one. And she says, doesn't complexity matter or something? And then he's like, oh, excuse me, uh, whatever. <laughs> so if this episode has an overall point about political debate, it's really just a meta one about how, hey, look, Politics is complicated. There's no easy answers. The worst thing you could possibly do is have a clear opinion about anything. The best you can do is own your opponent rhetorically in a debate using just the most like circular logic. Just have every political debate. You win by offering kind of rhetorical cul-de-sac from which there is no escape for opponent, but not actually making any particular point about anything. And I do, I do think that this particular moment in the in the debate episode is so critical to understanding how American liberals, powerful ones that went to work in the Obama White House, actually think this stuff works. One one other thing that that struck me after reading Corey Robbins' article and rewatching these episodes was how much time they spend kind of showing you all these moments where you know the team is workshopping the the nuances of the answers Bartlett's going to give in the debate. One of the things that comes through in these memoirs written by various Obama staffers is that the things they remember the most strongly are these kind of totally banal moments that actually don't matter. So for example, uh, and people may have actually heard this excerpt from the Dan Pfeiffer memoir. I think they read it on an episode of Chapo Trap House, where he's recalling the time they obliterated Mitt Romney, who had this story about doing you know, a drive, a family drive with his dog on top of the car, right? Mm-hmm. And they did a viral video, according to Dan Pfeiffer. No one else remembers this video. Honestly, I so don't remember it. I wonder if it actually existed. (laughs) Where Obama, they had him do something with a dog or something that was cute. This is something that he put in his, you know, memoir of the Obama White House, right? This This was us just owning them or whatever. There's another part where he talks about how... Uh, the Republicans were spreading misinformation. So they made a special website that had facts on it where the Republicans would say, with the money on the health care, we could build an aircraft carrier. And you could and you could go onto their special website that was like uh, libtruth.gov or whatever, and you could read that actually the, you know, the recess appointments said that a, a 50 billion point one farm subsidies actually added up to this or whatever. Yeah. And that's what he. Yeah, that's what I, he I was gonna. I was gonna check it out, but yeah. you know, I my fingers accidentally started to P and then O and then R and then all of a sudden you I, was went, on, I was on Pornhub. You went and I to, decided to stay you there. You went to your 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 homepage www.pornographicwebsite.com. <laughs> I mean, actually, incidentally, that was the URL that, <laughs> that they created. Securing peace in a time of global conflict, sustaining hope this winter of anxiety and fear. More than any time in recent history, America's destiny is not of our own choosing. We did not seek, nor did we provoke an assault on our freedom and our way of life. We did not expect, nor did we invite, a confrontation with evil. Yet the true measure of a people's strength is how they rise to master that moment when it does arrive. You know the West Wing very well, and a lot of people on the left who grew up with the West Wing still will say, oh, you know, I, I enjoy it as entertainment. Do you get any pleasure out of it still? I think at this point that ship's really sailed. I think there was a kind of purgatory where I was able to sort of enjoy it as drama while realizing it was bad. This is 
purely subjective, I should say. I mean, I, I do think, and I, you know, in the current affairs essay I wrote a few years ago, I did say, I think the West Wing is like, you know, decent enough drama. I think if, if the show really was just kind of innocuous, middle-brow drama about American politics, that'd be fine. You could, you could enjoy it. And honestly, I think you should enjoy it. If, you, if you're into it and you enjoyed his entertainment, go for it. A lot of people received my article that I wrote a couple years ago as kind of a dictate to, like, don't, don't you dare enjoy the show. Mm. Like, I'm in favor of people enjoying things, right? Like, if you enjoy the show, absolutely go for it. The tr- the pro- I'm, I'm, I'm not, but, that, but go ahead. <laughs> the problem is not that the show exists uh, or that people enjoy it. It would not be worth writing about. There'd be absolutely no reason in 2017 to write an essay about a drama that had been off the air since 2006, right? That would be ridiculous. Can you imagine doing that with anything else? The issue is that so many powerful people continue to cite this as an influence that it not only reflects, but also I think directly has inspired a particularly ineffectual kind, like informed a particularly ineffectual kind of liberal politics. And I have wrestled with it for years because it... I think so eloquently, and I don't say that in this case to to credit it, sums up what is wrong with the way that a, a particular type of kind of American liberal, you know, post the 1980s thinks about how politics works, um, both in terms of what it is, but also in terms of what it should be. So on the level of enjoyment as entertainment, that ship's absolutely sailed for me. There's no moment I can watch from this show where I don't think of an actual thing that happened and think... God, this show wants us to think this was good and noble. Mm. And actually, you know, Scott Walker just conquered Wisconsin. Like, why are you celebrating this? You know, if the rule you followed brought you to this, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But in a bizarre way, I do kind of enjoy it for for the exact same reason. Because it's like liberal camp. Well, yeah, right. I mean, it, it felt so kind of serious and important at one point. And now it is just kind of a weird burlesque parody of like, the sort of dewy-eyed ecstasy, uh, you know, of sort of 2008, 2009, like the liberalism that, uh, you know, Obama kind of launched and, and, and made the norm. And for that reason, I mean, I think I do enjoy watching it just as something that, for all the wrong reasons, has a lot to say about the multiple crises of contemporary politics and the deep abiding inadequacy of a liberalism that tells us it's the only alternative to an increasingly dangerous and radicalizing right. Well, whenever I see President Bartlett sitting in that Oval Office surrounded by the smartest guys in the room, I just reflect on, you know, I may not love the show, but the institutions that it depicts are still so powerful and they still kind of hit me on, you know, a level in my heart somewhere. And, and you know, Donald Trump is in that chair right now. <laughs> broken more Elton John records. He seems to have a lot of records. And we beat, and I, by the way, I don't have a musical instrument. I don't have a guitar or an organ. No organ. Elton has an organ. And lots of other people helping. No, we've broken a lot of records. We've broken virtually every record because, you know, look, I only need this space. They need much more room. For basketball, for hockey, for all the sports, they need a lot of room. We don't need it. We have people in that space. So we break all these records. But really, we do it without, like, the musical instruments. This is the only musical, the mouth. And hopefully the brain attached to the mouth, right? The brain, more important than the mouth is the brain. The brain is much more important. 